0: Hello to all the listeners, I welcome you back to the Season 2 Episode 7 of OnTribine and I'm your host PJ. Season 2 of OnTribine primarily focuses on investment, be it venture capitalists, private equity firms, hedge funds or angel investors. I am more delighted to give a quick introduction about Narvi Alexandrian. So, Narvi graduated from Solit School of Business. He started his career at Deloitte where he climbed up the ladder to senior associate. By December 2012, he became the manager in a corporate strategy and business development at Firmex. Through this role, he has maintained to be an instructor and a case writer for Chartered Professional Accountant of Ontario, CPU Ontario. He has become an advisor at Mars Innovation. He also became an innovator for clean technology program at Unido. By December 2013, he, be- he became senior strategy manager at Telus. He was also a venture capitalist at Omer's Venture for almost three years from December 2014. July 2018 was such a huge turn because he became the president and CEO for Riv Capital. It's such a fascinating story that you guys will learn in the podcast that he left this exciting role to follow his passion in the tech industry which then by september 2022 he became the founder and ceo of Define capital which is a private equity firm that acquires mission critical software companies and tackle their unique use cases in niche verticalized market the most exciting part in the podcast in the entire podcast is the conversation we had of his professor role in Sulu School of Business so I'm not gonna break the glasses now I just want you guys to jump into the podcast and listen to it and let me know which was your favorite part with no further delay I'm happy to welcome our guest to the show yeah. So, hi Norway. Welcome to the podcast of Ontrabine. and I'm like really happy to welcome you. After a long struggle, we are here today. It's a wonderful thing. And how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, it was a long struggle to get to get here. Uh, <laughs> a number of rescheduling, but I'm really glad that we ended up uh, finding the time to do it.
0: That's truly awesome. Yeah. So. You know, starting up, I looked at your profile, you started your company back in, what, 2018, prior to that, it's all years of learning you have. And what was your biggest inspiration to start your first firm? If I'm not wrong, it's R.A.V. Capital, right? That was your first firm.
1: Yeah, so I actually walk you back into history. uh, I started off my career 15 years ago as a CPA. I worked at Deloitte, Uh, never did uh, accounting or tax. Uh, I did consulting and M&A. Um, fell in love with the startup world at the time in Toronto, where I'm from. Uh, there weren't many startups, uh, venture back startups. There weren't many venture funds at the time. Uh, but I just fell in love with the the the, the industry. So, uh, in the early the late 2000s, I joined a local startup uh, as as a manager of corporate strategy. Um, help them kind of pave the way into getting into new markets and and how to change the, not just the product, but the idea behind how to attack and and find customers. Uh, Then started working a little bit with Mars Innovation, big government incubator in Toronto. Uh, I worked a bit with the United Nations and their clean tech VC program. Uh, I moved to TELUS where I did uh, majority strategy, but also uh, worked a little bit with corporate development M&A as well as the venture side. And then moved uh, my talent all the way to Omer's Ventures, where uh, I joined the largest VC fund in Canada. Uh, worked there for uh, four years, came in as an associate, uh, um, was given the partner role by that. By the time I was uh, I was leaving, um, and just really fell in love with technology. I think the venture capital role is really fun in the sense that you get to see so many different startups, uh, and you get to ask them. Point blank, what's your secret sauce? What differentiates you from the ten other companies doing the same thing? And because they all want to get that investment, they will tell you like what they do differently. So then you get to see different business models. Originally, I thought that would be the the spark that would uh, push my entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit forward. I've always wanted to do thing on my do something on my own. But um, it actually jaded me, to be honest, uh, Being seeing so many different smart people doing so many different companies at such a young age. Um, I felt like I had to do a little bit more training, a little bit more understanding, because before I could build something. So in the summer of 2018, or in the beginning of 2018, I started getting headhunted for this role at Canopy Growth, uh, which was uh, they had their own uh, venture capital, private equity arm. Uh, So, I I left Omers Ventures, I joined there as a VP, we spun it out, took it public, uh, went on the Toronto Stock Exchange, then the Canadian Stock Exchange. Uh, We did a number of transactions, over a billion dollars of capital, uh, and then we ended up going through three change of controls or selling the company three times over a course of 16 months. Um, And towards the end of it, I uh, wanted to walk away from the business and kind of get back into the tech side. Because while cannabis was really fun and it was really cool to be part of something brand new uh, and revolutionary, um, my heart was always with technology. I always used to wake up in the morning and read tech news, not cannabis news, because it was my passion was on one side, and I just couldn't deny it. So uh, I left Riv Capital in April of 2022, took some time off, and then started the ideology around Defined Capital. So Define Capital soft launched in January 2023 to uh, friends and family uh, and then hard launched in July 2023 to the public we are an acquisition vehicle we look for profitable software companies to acquire uh, that are in between 400,000 to 5 million of EBITDA um, and uh, we, we look to um, find these companies that are mission critical so ones that uh, really hard to rip out of a company and I can define that too separately and, and, and go down that uh, but in a business-to-business world as well. So not so much on the B2C, but on the B2B. So think uh, government software, waste management software for waste management companies, uh, utilities, grid software for utilities companies, uh, donation platforms for churches and temples and, um, and mosques, uh, just the technology that takes small companies and allows them to get into the technology age.
0: That's really awesome. Like, the part where you had a very good career in rv capital but still you wanted to push towards your passion not being there it, it takes a lot you know to leave that place and you know start something new that's really awesome and you have also been a professor for almost like 10 years at solace so talk talk about that like how did you start that journey and like which is your favorite part is it being a professor teaching things to people or you know having your own firm
1: yeah it's a great question so i started i i'm an uh, alumni from shulick uh, I, I graduated my undergraduate there uh and um my last year of school which was in 2008 2009 uh, i was student government president so i got to meet a lot of the professors that were there uh, on a number of committees that i was sitting on when i graduated i started uh, becoming a teacher's assistant uh teaching assistant i, I marked i ran labs i Um, taught uh, tutorials. And uh, I remember this one time, it was about a year into being a TA, uh, my students kept coming up to me and asking me for questions on the actual definition of the material that their prof was supposed to teach. And they would come to me as their lab instructor and I already had a busy enough schedule because I had a number of questions to go through with them. And I remember telling them, I, I said that this isn't my role to teach you this. I'm happy to do it. But every week I'm getting asked to go through the entire chapter from scratch. Uh, isn't your prof doing that for you? And the students were saying, no, but you explain it so much better. Uh, you, you do it so uh, you, you have so much more passion than the prof did. And this is an accounting course, which isn't like something I love to do. Uh, it's something I'm trained to do. So uh, I, was, I started wondering, I was like, well, if I really like doing this course and it's not my passion, imagine if it was my passion. So I went, uh, I was 24 years old at the time. And I went to the the head of the accounting department and I said, I'm ready to teach. And uh, I got a quick no. They said, you don't have a master's, you don't have a PhD, you just have an undergraduate. Uh, you graduated like two years ago or three years ago, What um, you, you don't have the right to teach. Uh, and I remember I had my chartered accountancy or CPA at the time. Uh, and they said, uh, well, I don't have my master's or PhD. I said, okay, well, I'm gonna go back. And I spent half a day at Deloitte sitting there I went through the list of every single prof that I could find, went on their LinkedIn page, and created a pie chart. And I sent that pie chart to the course, the the head of the department, and I said, uh, "30% of your of your profs have a master's or PhD. Give them credit for that. 30% of them aren't online at all, like they're not on LinkedIn, uh, because this was like 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, and then uh, sorry, 2010." And then I said, well, there's 40% of them that have the same background as me. They have one designation being a CPA or CA and uh, they've been in the work world and they don't have any other academic achievement beyond what we've achieved together, uh, mutually. They're my peers. And I sent that over with a message that said, better check the, uh, the background of your profs because as a response of not everyone has a PhD and master's. And it was like one of those cheeky comments that I made when I sent it, I kind of regretted it. I was 24 years old, and I was like, "Oh man, why should why did I do that?" And then about six months later, I get an email that says, "Hey, a prof dropped out. Do you want to teach the accounting course in a week from now?" And I said, "Heck yes, I'm all on board for it. Let's do it." So I did that, um, and the first go around was very hard because I was young. Some of the uh, I, I was I, I saw students that I used to go to school with that were still there, which was kind of weird. But then my second go around on it, it just became much more smoother, and the creative juices started to come out. And then through that process, I won a Teaching Excellence Award, which was given to the top prof in the school. Um, And then I was given a choice of what course I wanted to do. So this is back in 2013, I decided I wanted to do uh, a new course that was coming out teaching computer science and uh, other engineers how to start their own tech startup. Uh, And it was two courses. And I decided to take that up. My first time I taught that course, we had five students in the class. And they they said, that's okay. It's your first time time we're doing it. And the second time we taught the class, there was uh, 14 students in the class. And they said, if you can't get to 15, we're going to cancel the class. And we got to 15. And then we did the course there. Now, fast forward uh, about 10 years since we started teaching that course, uh, we have about 200 students in the class and over three sections completely sold out every single time Uh, and i love it Um, it, to me it's uh there's a lot of different ways that people can give back to the community uh i could go into a soup kitchen and help the homeless but i always find that the skill set that we all have as professionals in our head um the, the the best thing you could do is find the time to give that back to someone young so that when they go through school and they want to graduate, they don't have to go through all the, uh, the same roller coaster of mistakes that we all make during that period of time. Uh, you kind of give them the, the, the leg up of saying, hey, let me just teach you some wisdom. Let me show you the things you should not do. Let me show you the things you should focus on. Like don't think about money in the first few years, focus on experience, focus on finding your passion uh, because your career is long. You don't understand what 40 years feels like when you're 22 years old. Uh, because everything in your life has been in four-year chunks, it's really hard to imagine that. But trust me, focus on learning as the number one goal for you and the money will come. Don't worry about that.
0: That's truly awesome. It felt like, you know, listening to a motivational (laughs) backstory on TEDx. You know, it's just more than talking about the venture capital. I'm like more intrigued to talk about this topic right now. It is so, so good listening to the whole topic. It is truly... But coming back to venture capital, I mean, coming back to, you know, your capital's journey, uh, the defining capital while checking on the website, I saw like, you know, the motto of the company, like we look to acquire businesses that have high user retention and a strong operating team with a view to never sell any of our portfolio like this is a criteria and a motto together the idea of you know having a high user retention is okay but still you know never having an idea to sell a portfolio like what made you have this motto
1: yeah there's a lot of businesses out there that have such a strong hold to their customers they mean so much to their customers that it's just incredibly difficult to rip them out Um, and so uh, these businesses tend to be held by entrepreneurs. They've bootstrapped them. They haven't raised venture money. They've kind of used their own pocket money to start it and then waited for profit to come in and then use the profit for marketing. And then it took a long time. So in the venture world, you can go from zero to $100 million in five years because you're funding it through capital that you've, you've injected from investors. In the bootstrap world, it might take 20 years to get to that standpoint because you just have to wait for the profit to come back. And so there's a lot of these businesses out there, um, and I just adore them. Uh, There's a number of them that are right now coming up for sale that are owned by older uh, men and women that started them in the 90s, early 2000s. The technology itself is fairly old, but the use case is still prominent. Uh, Companies don't want to rip them out. You have retention rates of 99 98%. Uh, nobody takes them out unless they, get, they go bankrupt or they get bought. Uh, and it's just like a mainstay within an organization. So the way we like to define what mission critical means are two things. One is data gravity. Another one is account gravity. Data gravity is when you're a piece of software in an organization where a bunch of other data flows into it. Uh, and you become the central hub of the data that's coming in. You suck the data in to present it to uh, the the executive to understand uh, what decision they need to make. If you rip that piece of software out, the data is disparate and you can't really understand what's happening to your business. Example of these would be CRM systems, customer relationship management, ERP systems, enterprise resource planning systems, just typically anything that is a dashboard for a bunch of data coming in. The second one is called uh, account gravity. And this is the type of... Uh, software that it's the last thing you turn off if your computer if your company goes bankrupt or you have to liquidate. So if you think of like payroll for example, it's the last thing you're gonna turn off when your company goes bankrupt because you still have to pay the last employee and you have to do that through your payroll system. So what does that look like as well? So those two to us is mission critical. And when you find something in these boring type industries like government where it's really just it takes a lot to to, uh, to make a software that's better than what's in there to go and retrain everyone reintegrate everyone uh, it just becomes like this cash cow for uh, for for profitability and so when we look to these businesses and we go to these owners we want to go with a, with a, with the a idea that we want to keep the legacy for that owner for as long as we can quite frankly forever so we go with the promise of forever to say that, You're selling your company. You're probably at the age now at 60, 65 that you want to retire. Uh, We'll take your company. We're not going to change the name. We're not going to let anybody go. We're going to run the thing the way that you ran it because it was profitable in that sense. And we're going to find other ways to make revenue. We're going to create a a sales and marketing team. We're going to create channel sales. uh, So where we, we find other companies that sell to similar customers and have them sell our product. We're going to do affiliate sales. We're going to sell other people's stuff to our customers as well. And we're going to find different revenue mechanisms and cost mechanisms in order to make the company better. But your company's legacy is always intact. And I think that goes a long way for for owners because I think one of the fears they have is this is like their third baby, right? They have their kids at home, and then this is like the third one where they've dedicated so many years to this, sleepless nights. They missed out on their kid's hockey game because they were going to, to work to, to focus on building something for a customer. And when they walk away from the business, a lot of times like they just want to know that you're going to take care of their kid. And that's the promise that we do, we do try to make. Uh, and not always is it something that we promise from the get-go because there are times where uh, you just can't keep all the employees because it just doesn't make sense the way that it's structured. Uh, but we tend not to go to those companies. We tend to... Uh, are as a magnet, we like the companies that there's nothing wrong with them. The owner just wants to uh, succeed. And before I, I stop, there's a statistic that over the next 30 years in North America, there's going to be $27 trillion of small businesses that are going to go from baby boomers to the next generation. So either they're kids, or if the kids don't want it, then uh they get sold to someone else like us
0: you know you were telling about this customer acquisition you know all these things but it's impossible to always have this you know unique value proposition when you get a company somewhere or you know every time there is this iteration that happens you you create a different version of your own company but when you acquire it it's it's hard to still keep up the promise, as you said, with the employees. It's still going to be hard in terms of their unique value proposition. So how do you maintain that?
1: Yeah, the first thing you do when you buy a company, and this is our playbook, is uh, you don't change a thing. You start talking to customers. You want to understand how the customers perceive the product, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, what they would change, how it fits into their process. So you spend excuse me, spend six to nine months just focused on voice of customer. Let's just understand the customer as much as we can. And then once you get that, then you spend another six to nine months understanding internally what's going on with the company. How do they take what you've learned from the customer and put it into action? I think a lot of people, what they wanna do, and this is like where the impatience comes through, the day first day they come in, they just wanna make a big bang and things have changed and management's gone and we're the new management. Um, it's not the way anything's done in the the world. Uh, I always say that change is always done incrementally and never radically. Everything from social rights to cannabis legalization and and how that industry is growing to uh, what we're seeing in AI, um, it's just step-by-step that's moving for crypto is a great example. Step-by-step that we're moving forward. It's not like all of a sudden the banking system is going to collapse and Bitcoin is going to become the tender for everybody. And that's the same way we look at a business. We wanna come in, understand it, take the time to do it, and then take a look back and reflect and say, is this probably the most efficient way to do this? Or is there a different way to do this?
0: The main criteria you have is a strong customer you know, retention. What other criteria do you have in order to acquire new startups?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think the, the, the number one criteria beyond being mission critical is uh, profitability. We wanna find companies that um, have EBITDA positive uh, so they're profitable we want to buy the company as a multiple of the EBITDA now there are instances where the company is growing much faster from a revenue perspective so there's no point of having EBITDA because they could just plow that back into the growth of the business that's okay we can look at it from a revenue perspective and evaluate it from that angle and it's a, it's, a, it's a much more valuable company because values derived from revenue growth more than anything else um, so there's different lenses to look at these companies. I think at the end of the day, we just want to know that we just want to look at companies and acquire companies that the customers just can't live without. It's just like a part of their process, a part of their system. Uh, they can't rip it out uh, in any given time. And they just love the software at the same time.
0: So I also wanted to like quote one of the best you know, things that I've had from your LinkedIn page that... We buy, we hold, and we nurture, aiming to preserve and enhance the legacy of a small business we acquire. It's definitely a strong sentence. Like, it's important to preserve a culture, but what, how do you like put your best foot forward in order to preserve the culture and the work environment that the startup has?
1: Yeah, I think there's a to to quote on top of that quote. There's a there's a quote that Warren Buffett made. He made it in the nineteen nineties, I think, and I don't think it's like as safe as it, it is in 2023 uh, because of uh, where we are in cancel culture. But he basically said that when you want to buy a company, it's the equivalent of uh, trying to marry a single mom. You want to tell them that you'll be a great life partner to the mom, but at the same time, you want to prove that you won't screw up their kid. And I think that goes the same here. Like when you, when you talk to these owners that want to step away from the business, you have to really go with the lens that like you, you have the same passion as them. And you can't lie about it, everyone can see that. You generally have to feel it. Um, and you, you love the business they've built and you're gonna take care of it once they walk away and they go uh, on a cruise or a vacation property, whatever they wanna do with uh, the, the money that they get from the sale of the business. You want them to feel comfortable that you're gonna be a great steward of the business. And to me, that is way more valuable than a high valuation. And we've been in instances where uh, we've bid, I don't know, seven, eight times EBITDA on a company and a strategic would come in, a uh, big U.S.-based, private equity-backed strategic, and they would bid 15 times EBITDA. And the, comp- the guy would come to us and say, I kind of want to take that offer. I want to take your offer, but I'm kind of crazy. Am I not? And that's the conversations we have with them. And we would sit down with them. And in that instance, we sat down with them and said, Dude, you gotta take the other offer. It's it's like almost double what we're offering you. And he's like, oh, but like they said they're gonna get rid of my employees and they're gonna uh, move a bunch of the R&D to uh, in another country, offsource it, outsource it. And I said, like, listen, um, you're making double the money. You can take some of that cash and give it to your employees. They'll be way better off than working for someone. <laughs> Uh, there's a different ways to do it uh, and uh, I would take it in a heartbeat uh, and I know there's some risk attached to it but uh, even if like maybe it's 25% less you're still way better than what we're offering you and I think that goes a long way the, the, the fact that we don't freak out and say oh my god we're going to lose this deal let's go and try to convince them how much we're better I think by taking the route of hey if I was in your shoes I'd take that offer it really creates trust and I think that In business, reputation means everything. It takes 40 years to build a reputation, only five minutes to rip it down. So you really have to think long-term and word gets around that you're a nice group of people that mean well, um, and then the deal flow starts running to you.
0: So I'm sorry that I keep on clinging to the user retention, but it's so important. Like uh, having a user retention is difficult, but it's definitely not possible. You know, what are your tips that, you know, you can provide it to startups out there, how they can maintain the user retention level?
1: Um, Try to become as sticky as possible. So if you think of what uh, companies like uh, Salesforce and Microsoft, who are amazing acquirers, have done in the past, and and we tend to, uh, as a side, we tend to always study other companies that that are much bigger than us. I don't think there's any use of trying to invent the wheel Uh, Or reinvent the wheel when someone else has already made a lot of these mistakes and what I love about those businesses and the way they look at acquisitions is they have like a product that currently exists right now and they go and they buy another product that fits into the bundle of what they're selling and they can pay a lot for that company because they know that if they bring it in the bundle and open it up to the number of customers that they have it's going to be taken in very well and they're going to quadruple or 10 times revenue from what they bought. So they're okay with paying more for it. So you have to be more to the customer. When you think of like the Microsoft Office 365 bundle or the Google G Suite, there's so much in there that you just need that is really hard for you to rip it out. So stickiness comes with bundling as many features and and products that you can that mean something to your customer. So when we look at buying a company, to make it even stickier, we're like, well, what can we buy? What else can we buy in the value chain that complements what we currently have, with the same group of customers that we can become stickier and stickier and stickier, so it's harder for them to rip out. And the second piece I'd say for, for, for creating sticky product is, again, going back to my one of my previous comments, you just have to really understand how your customer uses the product, and you have to be really honest with yourself. If you're not a sticky product, that's okay. A lot of businesses are successful by not being incredibly mission critical, but you can't lie to yourself and think you are when your customer, in, any, in a recession time, can just rip it out and say, "I don't need this. I'll pick it back up in the next bull market." Uh, and and I think a lot of companies don't do that, uh, and and they get uh, burned by it down the road because uh, um, they just they're not true to themselves.
0: You know, can you share a memory of? One of the startups that you, you invested in, the one that just, you know, stuck your heart?
1: Oh, there's a lot of those. Um, so the, the investments that we made that panned out, um, they're great in terms of, hey, you had this thesis and it worked out. And uh, as a young person, uh, when I got into the venture capital world in my uh, early to mid-20s, I, I always wanted to have like that Shopify type of deal. So my old shop, Omer's Ventures, was, one of the, was an early investor into Shopify before it became such a big hit. Uh, it was a hit already, but it wasn't like a public company hit like it is now. And as a young guy, I always wanted to be on those cool deals. I wanted to be part of the Shopify deal team. And when they're going public, uh, I was probably the only junior guy that wasn't touching the file. And I always just get annoyed by it. And the companies that I dealt with were the ones that were just beat up. Uh, their last like, million dollars left and they knew they were going to run out of money. They knew it was going to be really hard to raise capital because they hadn't hit the milestones they said they were going to hit. And there's a lot of interplay between the venture capitalists. Of, um, someone wants to put in money to keep the company alive, but then wants to wash out other investors and pay to play rounds. And I remember one time someone uh, more senior to me John Ruffalo, who's the guy who, who founded Omer's Ventures, uh, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, like, can I tell you what the Shopify board meetings are like? And I said, sure. like, That's amazing. Like, the company's about to go public. And he sat down he's like, well, you go in there, they hit their numbers, they don't miss budget, uh, maybe they overspent a little bit, and you kind of say, hey, just watch out for that. And then everyone high fives and then we all go out for dinner. And he's like, of course, he's like um, making it sound much easier than it is. They're going public. There's a lot of work there. But uh, he was kind of trying to mention that it, it it is a very successful company. And it's much easier as a board member to sit on a successful company's board than a not so successful one. And then he said, well, look at the companies that you're dealing with right now. What do they look like? And I said, well, you go in there and it's like everyone's calm. And then all of a sudden venture capitalists start yelling at each other. And the management's trying to take a side. And. Uh, it's just, it just like this crazy town. And he's like, that's where you learn the most. So going to your question, when I look at like my, my history of all the investments that we made, I tend to stick more to the ones that weren't as successful, that went through the hardship, because I probably spent 10 times more time on those companies in order to get something out of it or keep them alive or try to help them understand what they were doing wrong and what they were trying to fix than the successful ones where... You know what? If you show up to the board meeting or not, they're gonna—they're doing well just without you. They don't really need your help. The product just has great product market fit, and it's going forward.
0: How do you pick limited partners for your private equity firm? That's
1: a great question. Uh, You first have to understand what it's like not to have partners that you enjoy, Uh, and then you—you learn from it. So I think it's the equivalent um, to—and I was talking to my wife about this a few months ago. I said it's kind of like the equivalent to dating. Like if you, if you dated when you were young and then you found your significant other that you ended up marrying, uh, you kind of understand what you want by the time you meet that person. And if you don't do that and you kind of go with your high school sweetheart or something like that, in my opinion, sometimes you just don't really know what could have existed. So and in the same sense, there's a lot of investors that I absolutely adored and I understood what I wanted in an investor. There's other investors that either inherited at one of the shops that I was at or um, was kind of given to us because they came with a great package and we took it without doing due diligence that ended up burning you because your philosophy was quite different from one another. And my philosophy is always long term, patient, the Warren Buffett style of you don't need to be a gajillionaire when you're 23, but just trust the compounding effect of capital and the right decisions you make. Finance can't go wrong, uh, and you'll get to the promised land. And uh, you have to find people like that. So now that I'm a bit older in my um, late 30s, I think I have way more, um, way more of an ability to push away investors that I just don't feel this. We have the same philosophy and same value system, and I'm okay with that. If they never put a dollar into anything I do, and they could have saved me from. Uh, finishing around versus not finishing around, I'm okay, because I know that 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 type of person or that type of group will will sour the entire culture that I'm trying to build. And to me, and you can see on the website, culture is everything. If everyone's speaking the same language and loves doing what they do, it just comes so easily. Everyone just does it uh, and just loves coming to work. It's like a second home. As soon as they don't love what they do, then you start hearing about, well, I want to get paid more or else I'm going to leave and and, and stuff like that. And to me, that, that's when culture breaks.
0: LB is actually like, you know, backing the private equity firm. But what power do they hold on the firm that you guys acquire? Or you are the people who are actually controlling it or do they have any power to make any changes over there?
1: Yeah, so in a typical venture and private equity fund, what you would do prior to investing a single dollar is what you create an LP agreement, an LPA. And that would dictate the rules of engagement of what you can and can't do. So if they give you a boatload of cash and say, Hey, uh, Pooja, can you, go, you need to go invest in tech companies. And you say, oh, well, I saw this one gold stock that I really liked. I want to put money into it. You can't do it they'll fire you, they'll take their money back, the commitment's all gone because you broke the agreement that you put into place. They gave you the capital to invest in tech companies and you went and invested in something completely different and that broke the LP agreement. Other times like there's, there's uh, covenants in there to say that you can't over invest in a single company, you need to diversify yourself a bit more, you can't invest in such late stage startups or early stage startups, this is kind of the area you have to invest into. So they give you a bunch of rules of engagement. In my world we're defined capital we're not a uh, typical uh, fund we are a permanent capital corporation. Think of us as a startup that raises capital to then go and buy businesses. Um, what our investors get and they' the kind of they are LPs at the end of the day but it's not a GPLP model what our investors get is uh, rights they have the ability to uh, vote, ability to um, uh, if they have enough uh, ownership, They get to uh, elect a board member to then watch over and make sure that we're good stewards of capital and we're allocating capital properly. They get a lot of these says, but there's no agreement that says like what we can and can't do as much as you would see in the GPLP model.
0: What's your piece of advice for, you know, some private equity firms out there in order to manage the conflicts between the LPs and them?
1: It's a full time job. You have to just consistently be on top of everybody make sure everyone's happy, talk to them all the time. Um, we, at Define Capital, we do this tremendously good job of creating this flywheel where uh, whether it's targets, it's uh, uh, investment banks, it's lawyers, accountants, advisors, uh, um, prospective investors, interesting people that could know someone that could become an investor, we keep track of all of those. And if if ever there's a period of time where I like the person or their investors and we haven't chatted in a month. Something dings me and says, Hey, go talk to that person because quite frankly, the way you break a you, you you lose a relationship without anything negative happening is time passing by and just becomes awkward and it's hard to talk to them again. So we always make a concerted effort to consistently talk to them. Of course that's a lot more work. Um, and I was telling one of my investors today, between the hours of nine to five um, I don't actually do much work. I'm always in meetings and calls and uh, talking to the whole variety of people that I mentioned. It's only at nighttime, after like eight o'clock, where I can actually dig deep and it's quiet and I can focus on uh, doing due diligence or looking at a model or uh, looking at some of the materials that the companies or our investors have sent us. Um, so uh, it's just it's just having that open line of communication. And really understanding what it is they want to get out of it.
0: You definitely are you know, investing in tech. So this question is a must. What do you think the impact of AI is going to be in the upcoming tech industry? And how is it going to change the private equity firms investment or the entire investment landscape? So more and more companies are bringing in AI. And what's your view on that?
1: I think it's going to change a lot of businesses. Uh, businesses that are reliant on creativity uh creative so there's a business that we were going to acquire that was creating media assets like kind of like a mixture of Canvan Getty images for a certain industry we looked at that business and said hey mid-journey photoshop ai all the generative ai companies that are are either out or coming out they're going to beat this company up and right now they're not going to do it because if anybody used photoshop ai or, or uh or mid-journey it just really beats up your computing power. Not a lot of computers can actually handle it. The videos you see on YouTube, they're like time-lapse. They go really quickly. And the computers that they're using are like kind of -of state-of-the-art. For most of us, we don't have a GPU in our laptops. So everything goes really slowly. But that's fine. That's right now. In three years, you're going to have competitors that beat you down in terms of price because they're going to be able to do that much faster Mm -hmm. and and, and be able to charge less. And it's going to be a price war that pulls things down. In 10 years, maybe that end customer is going to have the ability to just do it themselves. So uh, we like to look at, because we're, we're a company that wants to buy and hold a company forever, we have to think in fairly forever terms. And so we have to really believe that this thing's going to stand for a long period of time and, and not go away. Beyond that, I think generative AI really just makes life easy. It makes things go faster. It increases productivity. I don't think, I'm not as scared that it's going to kill industries and kill what people do. I think it just makes people be more productive. So as a social media manager, uh, before ChatGPT, there's a lot of work was like maybe going from zero to one of an idea. I have this idea, blank piece of paper on a Word document. How do I get that started? And it takes a bit of time to just rev that engine. Now with ChatGPT, you can get like the first draft of it it's an ugly draft it's not a draft if you're if, if like and you're good at your job but if you're not if you're good at your job it's not a draft that you just love to just throw at the client you kind of have to tinker with it and over time it's gonna get better and better but there's still that human touch still is is needed for quality of work that's out there so for a period of time i think we're, we're going to use it to really increase productivity um, and I'm excited about it.
0: From your years of experience, in terms of teaching, and in terms of investment, like what's your piece of advice to startups out there?
1: Um, so a lot of people think that IQ and what you know and who you know is the determinant of if you're successful or not. And quite frankly, that's like completely true. And in a sense, like you have to be smart, you have to know a lot of people. You have to be able to take that risk. But to when you look at the data, the big difference between the very successful companies and the not successful or like the failures are determination. Like the people that we see that end up be, being be, uh, building billion dollar businesses, they don't care if anybody says their idea sucks. They just really want to solve that problem for their client. They don't care if like, they, they, they bumped into a fork in the road and something didn't go their way and their company's under attack. They don't care. They really believe in the thesis of what they're building. And I remember this one time in one of the venture firms that we were I was working at. Uh, we thought, we, we were at this offsite and we said, hey, why don't we uh, survey, why don't we do a psychological analysis on our founders and find out like personality-wise, EQ, IQ, what's the difference between the very successful ones and not so successful ones? And as we're going through the process of doing it, we started dawning on us that maybe the most successful ones are going to be the ones that have a, maybe a negative psychological uh, study because they're just too—they they believe too much in something that just hasn't been created yet. Um, and if word ever came out that that person is like a sociopath, but they've created a billion-dollar business, doesn't really look good on our uh, on, on our business. So we, we kind of stepped away from it. But uh, it, it didn't make sense because you just really need to be different. You need to push away all that noise and just focus on the, 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 uh, what you want to achieve. Um, if I'm to give one advice to folks that are either starting their own fund or starting their own company, um, it's to not focus on the money aspect as much, but focus on the problem that you're looking to solve for whom you're trying to solve for. So as a, as a GP of a, of a fund, you're trying to find investments that teach uh, your LPs, a certain sector that they just want to get more exposure to, as well as provides them with a, uh, a good return. If you're a founder, you're, you're hyper-focused on your client or customer and saying, what can I do to solve the pain point that I think the client, the customer has? And let's understand as much as possible. So... Roll up your sleeves, get in there, ask the hard questions. Don't be scared for of someone to say hey, that that's a dumb idea. Uh, if enough people say it's a good idea, it doesn't matter if one person says it's dumb. If everyone says it's a dumb idea, then maybe it is. But that's it's better to know that now versus spending time and energy and money into building something that just doesn't pan out.
0: So this is a question that I ask all of my you know guests on the show. So what is your view on passion and failure?
1: Um... You need passion. Uh, I always say that if you don't have passion in what you're doing, someone else will have that passion and outwork you with a smile on their face. What feels like work for you will feel like joy for someone else. So coming from the accounting world uh, as a CPA, CA, I remember when I was young, I used to look around my class and my, my firm and i say, hey, there's a lot of accountants here that just absolutely love accounting. And I'm not that type of person. How am I ever going to compete with them because I just don't have the passion for it. This is theirs. This isn't mine. This is what they should be doing. To me, this is just a foundation of information I need to get in order to help me understand finance a bit more. And then on the term of failure, um, in our business, uh, you need to fail in order to succeed. Um, in, In venture capital, you need to take a lot of risky bets for one of these things to pan out. Um, in private equity, you need to look at a lot of businesses and before you understand how to do a great investment. And so the, the more you embrace failure and you look at it less as, oh my God, what are people going to say if I fail and do this? Don't think of it that way. Just think of it as a learning curve. Um, if I can fail without spending much capital and doing it as quick as I can to get to the failure point, then I learn something and I can move on and, and, and fix it and do something different. And, and having that mindset is key. Failure isn't a roadblock. It is a point in time where you learn, you pivot, and then you just keep going down the journey. It's a, it's a point where a lot of people stop and they just don't want to do it anymore because of the, the pain of failure. But it's, it's, the, it's what differentiates the people that keep going and, getting, going and become successful versus the ones who sit down at the end of the night and just fantasize about the startup that they wish they're going to start someday, but they never do.
0: That's truly really great, and I think the way you explain passion and failure, you truly are an inspiration in terms of passion and example as well. Starting from the backstory, the motivational backstory of TEDx, through all the way you explain everything, it was truly phenomenal. We, I gained a lot of knowledge in terms of like private equity firms and LPS and so on, and I know I wish the listeners are also gonna learn a lot from today's you know a podcast and i thank you so much for being on the show thank you so much for accepting my request you know considering me as a person you know accepting that i really want to thank you so much
1: appreciate it. happy to be on and uh love to be on again so um maybe someday we can do another one
0: definitely definitely so thank you so much thank you everyone for listening to the podcast As I say in every single podcast, each and every episode is definitely life-changing. And yes, they do provide more value out there for even 0.01% of the community. It still values so much to me. I'm happy that you guys are still listening and providing a great support. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to more and more episodes. Until then, you're listening to Entrepine. And I'm your host, PJ.